continuing our study in Genesis, and, and we are doing it a little bit different today. Normally, I read the scripture and move on, but I, we're, as we get into the flood story, a little more detailed, I want to give a little bit of an introduction for us. The story of the ark is one that, um, that we know, right? Even most non-Christians, people who've never been to church, are at least a little bit familiar with the story of the ark. There are Fisher-Price toys and kids' puzzles. We learn about the ark in literature class alongside all the other flood stories of the ancient world. And our, our big question as Christians, especially for the last hundred years, regarding the ark are things like, did this really happen? Or was it a worldwide flood or was it regional? Could, could all these animals really have gotten on that one boat? And what about the, the marsupials? Could, could the dimensions of the boat really kept it afloat? What was it made of? And how did all those animals get from their continents to the ark? And how did they get back to their continents afterwards? Or was there a Pangaea continent of some sort? And did the flood make the Grand Canyon? And on and on and on and on and on and on we go. And I don't discount those queries. Those are important questions. I have those questions. I know many of you have those questions. They have a place. But they aren't the questions that the Bible takes into consideration on this issue. Because in the Bible, this isn't really a flood. In the Scriptures, this is the flood. The, the flood to end all floods. More accurately, probably a better way of thinking about this, a lot of our trouble comes from calling it a flood. A better way to think about it is the decreation of the earth, the undoing, the reversal of the six days of creation. The word that we translate flood isn't used anywhere else in the Bible to talk about anything else. It's what we call a technical word, a special word that only refers to this event. There are other floods in the Bible. Rivers rising over their banks. Probably the closest you get to waters like this is when the waters poured over the Egyptians in Exodus. You guys just studied that in Sunday school. But that judgment wasn't called Mabul, what this one is in the Hebrew. There's, there's no other place this word shows up except here in Genesis, as, we'll, as you'll see in Genesis 6 through 9, and one other place, Psalm 29, that passage that we read in our call to worship. And in Psalm 29, the psalmist is talking about the majesty and the power of God. The Lord is the one who by his voice alone can bring life or destruction. And then he says in Psalm 29.10, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The flood, definite article, the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And then David prays that this Lord would bless his people and give them strength. And what he's doing in Psalm 29 is reminding his people, our God is the God of creation, our God is the God of judgment and decreation and recreation. Our God is God over all. No one can stand up to him. And he's on our side. David's looking back at our passage, looking back at Genesis 6, in fear and in awe. The Lord is king over the creation, and he's king over the decreation. Then he's king over everything, forever. The Bible 
as a book, has a lot more to say about what happens here in Genesis 6 through 9. Noah and the flood are in the Psalms, certainly several times in the Psalms. They're in Isaiah, or Noah is in Isaiah. Noah is in Ezekiel. We see him in Matthew and Mark and Luke in Hebrews, both of Peter's epistles, and Jude. This is not just a moment in history. This is, this is a, an enormously important event in history, but just as important as the flood is Noah himself. Noah stands in redemptive history, and by that I mean this, this, the story of God's redemption of humanity. He stands in redemptive history as the second Adam. He's the first Adam. Noah is the second Adam because creation begins again with Noah. He's the first Moses because he delivered his people through the waters and God covenanted with him. He's also, and this is the, the important thing that we need to see, Noah is the first type of Christ. He's not Jesus. He's the first type of the Christ who would come because in Noah, in that wooden vessel, the seven are delivered from the wrath of God and brought into the new creation. So yes, this is a historical event. Yes, this is a geological event. But more importantly, this is a theological event meant to point us toward the kingship of the Lord and to Jesus our Christ. And when we study a theological event, we don't ask scientists about it. We don't look to the world to know what it means. We ask God's word about it because he is the one who reveals himself to us in his word. And the word has a lot to say about Noah. So much, in fact, that I, I realized this week I couldn't cover as much text as I wanted to. We, we, this week, we're going to just really work on laying a good foundation for who Noah is before the waters begin to rise. All right, so, so we're going to get into the ark of salvation and the new creation in a few weeks when I get back. But this morning, let's look together at the righteousness of Noah in the midst of a corrupt world. So Genesis 6, 9 through 12 is our text. And I'll read it and then pray. You can stay seated. You're already comfortable. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Noah. We thank you for the example of Noah. We thank you that we can look back at this man and know that we're not saved by him. Know that being like him will not save us but know that he is an example to us of what it means to trust in you. So, Lord, give us that understanding this morning of what it means to trust in you, to believe your word above all other things. Lord, give us faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, looking at our text, we're going to go 
verse by verse, but then we're also going to look at what the rest of Scripture says about these verses. Uh, As you've heard me say a hundred times before, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Those who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us what things mean are more reliable than the books that I can get from the seminaries. So, we're going to use the apostles to teach us about Noah, but first, let's look at the text. Genesis 6-9, that first line there you see, these are the generations of Noah. That tells us, I don't know if we've talked about this yet as we've been studying Genesis, but that generations of statement, that tells us this is a new chapter in Genesis, a new section. Genesis is divided up into these what we call generations books. So some of our modern chapter divisions, and you've heard me say this before, the modern chapter divisions are new in church history for the last, you know, since the 1600s. But before that, you didn't have chapter divisions. You just had these statements within the text. These are the, these, this is what people would look to to know how the, the, the book is meant to be divided up. It's divided up into these generations books. So some of our divisions, chapter divisions, correspond to these. Some of them not as much. So far, we've seen, as we've been reading Genesis, three divisions, or this is our third. The first one was, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That was back uh, at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Then, at the beginning of chapter 5, we had, these are the generations of Adam. And now, a new section here in the middle of our chapter 6, which is really chapter 3 for for Moses, but in our chapter 6, the middle here, we have, these are the generations of Noah. The generation books break up the history into these bits of uh, common themes, usually, not always, but usually built around a person. This one, which will take us through chapter 9, is, is about Noah. Who's Noah? And we know from the book of the generations of Adam that Noah comes tenth in the line from Seth's lineage. We know that he is Lamech's son, pious Lamech's son, not the bad Lamech, the good Lamech. And we know that Lamech was hoping and praying that through his son Noah would come relief. Remember that? Comfort. He was praying that that through Noah would come relief from the curse of the ground and the meaningless toil of life. That was the judgment on Adam and his lineage. What else do we know about Noah? Well, the three most important things, three most important attributes of Noah are here in verse 9. Look at the text. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. And for those of you who are troubled by this, well, nobody's righteous. That can't, this can't really mean Noah is righteous. You're going to have to set that aside for a moment because Noah really was righteous. Moses here in Genesis tells us about Noah's threefold righteousness And in case we forget, by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, he tells us again, or the beginning of chapter 7, the reason why Noah is even permitted to go in the ark that he himself built is because of his righteousness. Look at uh, the beginning of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." And then all throughout the rest of the Bible, Noah is known for his righteousness. Ezekiel speaks of it. 
Ezekiel chapter 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. The point that Ezekiel is showing us, or the Lord through Ezekiel is showing us, that someone with a righteousness greater than Noah's or Daniel's or Job's, three men famous for the righteousness, someone greater than that must deliver Israel from their sin. The answer is Jesus. Of course, we know that later on. But, but nonetheless, the Lord says in Ezekiel, Noah is righteous. The New Testament also teaches of Noah's righteousness. We see it in Hebrews, in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And Peter speaks of it as well. 2 Peter 2.5 If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we'll talk more about that passage in a little bit. But from the get-go, we see, we, we, we see that the Bible is not exaggerating. The Bible is not contradicting itself when it says that Noah was righteous. Noah was known for his righteousness. He has a threefold righteousness, as I said. Look again at verse 9. First of all, he is... Righteous before God. That's what that word, a righteous man, means. This is the first time we've seen this word in the Old Testament. And remember what I told you a few weeks ago. Whenever something comes up for the first time, take a note. This is the first time we see anyone spoken of as righteous. It'll also, this, this word, righteous, will, will come to be a very important word throughout the rest of Scripture. We read it this morning in Romans. We see it in Galatians, especially. But this is the type of righteousness that Abraham has. This is the righteousness that we will see all throughout the Psalms. This is the word, or the word translated as righteous here means that the person is right with God. Because God has judged him to be righteous. Secondly, Noah is the second, I said there's a threefold righteousness here. The second one is that he is blameless. Noah is blameless in his generation. Some of your Bibles, if you're using an old King James, say he's perfect. That doesn't mean moral perfection, but it does mean acceptable for the Lord's purposes. The word that is translated as blameless there is later used uh, in Exodus and Leviticus to describe that the, the animals, the types of animals that, that must be brought before the Lord for sacrifice. Lambs without spot or blemish. Noah is like this. He is without blemish. He's blameless. No person can charge him with any wrongdoing. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, when he describes the, the, the judgment of the flood and the coming fiery judgment of God, he says that we Christians, since we know that judgment is coming, 
we also ought to have this blameless character. Look what Peter says, 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, there it is, without spot or blemish and at peace. When the Lord returns, he should find us to have the same character as Noah, while Noah awaited the first judgment. He was blameless. He was without spot or blemish. So ought we to be. Lastly, Noah walked with God. Oh, really, in the Hebrew it says, with God walked Noah. And the, 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 the emphasis there, Moses wants us to see that the way that Noah walked was with God. It wasn't an occasional way of life. It was always who he was. Walking with God, his obedience to God, his dependence on God characterized who Noah was. That might remind you of someone else who walked with God in Noah's lineage or one of his ancestors, Enoch. Remember, Enoch also walked with God, but Enoch walked with God and then he was taken. Noah walked with God and and then, well, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? Everyone else was taken. And Noah's the only one left and his family. Now, all of that to say about Noah, this does not mean that Noah was without sin. I want to clarify that. Noah, Noah has Adam's sin nature. He's not a sinless man. That will become very clear after he plants his vineyard and the disaster that follows in that new creation. Eventually, even though he will escape this worldwide judgment, he will die. Genesis 9.29, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So he is not in the same category of sinlessness as Jesus is. Only Jesus is in that column of people. But Noah was a truly righteous man. In his day, he stood alone as the only righteous man in the world. How do we think of that as Christians? I've said enough about Noah in in that regard. How do we think about that? That that Noah, because of a was was he righteous because he had a a uniquely good-natured heart? Was it just good genetics? Was it the, the sheer strength of his will? That he was able to follow God in the midst of his generation? And if Peter says we ought to be blameless like Noah, can we? Can we really live like Noah did? I guess another way of asking this is if the the earth was to be destroyed tomorrow, would God preserve you? Well, in order to answer that question... It's not clear in Genesis, but Hebrews does tell us how to answer that question. Hebrews tells us more specifically what exactly this righteousness of Noah's was, and that helps us think about how to understand it on this side of the cross, all right? So let's look back at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So first of all, first two words, faith, right? Noah had faith, which means he believed God. He believed in God's promises. That's what faith is. He was assured of the things hoped for. That he was convicted of the things not yet seen. He trusted God's promises. Noah was like his father before him, hoping in the promise. God had promised in Genesis 3.15 that one would come. Remember that promise of the, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent? I'm going to mention that every sermon in Genesis. So just remember it. Because it is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. But Noah understood that promise, and Noah hoped in that promise. He knew that God would one day put an end to the serpent and all of his works. Noah, as a man of faith, was hoping in that promise. But in the context of Genesis 6, Hebrews says Noah also believed God when God said judgment was coming. And as verse 7 says, his faith in the word of God's judgment led him to this reverent fear of God. So he knew judgment was coming. He believed the end of the world was coming at God's decree. And so, what does it mean to show that you believe something? Well, first of all, he internally was moved to fear God. Faith in in Noah's life wasn't necessarily a happy, happy, joy, joy faith, was it? Believing what God says is faith. And believing for Noah and for us means believing that judgment is coming. And when you actually believe that judgment is coming, that brings reverent fear. If you don't believe it, you're not afraid of it. But if you do believe it, you would be afraid of it. And when we say reverent fear, I actually do mean fear. The psalmist has this fear. Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. This is the same fear that Noah has. A holy fear. A trembling, reverent fear. God is a loving and merciful God. But God is also a terrifying God. And Noah rightly fears God. Not anxiously. Not not a cowering fear. Not irrationally. But a knowing and steadfast fear with steadfast obedience. In this holy, faith-produced fear, Noah was led to action. Noah constructed the ark that would save his family. That's what Hebrews tells us. Friends, faith does this. Faith, yes, gives us an internal sense, but it also produces action. That's the point of this. Faith is not just an up-here idea. It's not just theory. Noah and his family would have been swept away in the judgment if Noah had not built the ark. His belief in God, his trust in God, meant that he put his hands to wood and saw and got to work. I mean, think think about it this way. Could you say Noah had faith? Could you say Noah believed God when God said judgment was coming if Noah had not prepared for the coming judgment? You would say, no, if he wasn't preparing for the coming judgment, he didn't believe God. He wasn't trusting God's word. 
Faith is lived belief. Noah believed God, therefore he built the ark that saved his family. Noah's faith and Noah's action are different. They're different, but they are inseparable. Inseparable. Noah has faith. That means he believes God. And so because he believes God, he does what God says. And then Hebrews says that because of Noah's actions, Noah condemned the world. Now, we didn't see that in Genesis 6, did we? If you're wondering what he means by he condemned the world, it's clear in, 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 uh, in Hebrews it's talking about his actions that condemned the world. So think about it this way. You have a 10-year-old boy, a 10-year-old son. And this has not happened in my family before. This is not a personal story. It just came to my mind. All right? So if you have a 10-year-old boy and a 2-year-old little girl, and you just get home from shopping for groceries, and you ask them to help you bring in the groceries from the car, and you, you, you tell the 10-year-old, grab the gallon of milk, bring it inside. Oh, it's too heavy. I can't. I can't do it. And then the two-year-old little girl looks up at her brother and smiles with a cute smile and toddles over, picks up the milk, and takes it inside. You would say that the little girl condemned the boy. Not by her words, but by her actions. She, she proved the brother to either be a liar or a wimp or a brat or some combination of the three. And I think that's what's meant here. Noah's obedience condemned the world's lack of action in the face of coming judgment. And now we get to the righteousness bit. It says, by, by his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, at first glance, this is kind of confusing because it seems like in Genesis, as we were reading it, you, you have Genesis uh, 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then these are gener the generations of Noah. He's righteous, blameless, and uh, he walked with God. And it seems like that faith is already in him. That, that righteousness, rather, is already in him. He's righteous from the start. And yet here in Hebrews, God says, Noah became an heir of righteousness. Well, first of all, this becoming an heir of righteousness means God made him an heir. And this inheritance, this heir language, is pointing to the legacy of those who are righteous before God. Noah, Abraham, down to Lord willing, you and me. Remember that righteousness, that word righteous there, and the righteousness we're talking about here is right standing before God. This is not something that we merit. It is something that is given by grace. Noah was given right standing. He was declared righteous through believing God. Through faith. One translator puts it this way. I, I think this clears it all up. It completely changes the translation, but theologically it fits. God declared that Noah was righteous because Noah trusted God. So Noah received righteousness from outside of himself. His faith in God's promise came first. Faith precedes righteousness. Without faith, without faith, Hebrews 11.6, without faith is impossible to please God. So we can't be declared righteous by God without first believing. Noah believed God. You see, through his faith, 
in that salvation that was coming, the salvation that was yet to come, Noah showed that he trusted God. He knew that God had promised a Messiah would come. And so he knew that if God says judgment is coming, judgment was imminent, he knew that God's promise would continue through the judgment. And because of that faith, that trust in God, God bestowed on Noah a righteousness that pleased the Lord, and that righteousness became expressed in Noah's life. Through that righteousness, he lived a blameless life. Through that righteousness, he walked with the Lord. So to answer the question of whether you and I can have this righteousness and live like Noah, well, the answer is yes, we can. That's really the point of Hebrews 11. And it is the imperative of all of the New Testament. Not only can you have this righteousness, you must have this righteousness so that you too can escape judgment. The righteousness, this righteousness, is the righteousness that comes through faith in God's promise. Noah had it. Abraham had it because they believe what God said. And if you're trusting this morning, if you're trusting that Jesus is the Christ, you have this righteousness. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. You are righteous before God because of your faith that is in Jesus, who is the Christ, the fulfillment of the promise from Genesis 3.15. So through the Spirit, through faith, you are united to Christ in His holiness, and you stand before God in Christ, righteous and justified, right before God. And through the Spirit of God, you live out this righteousness. And here's the thing. It's not a catch. It's a reality. This isn't just a theoretical righteousness. It's actual It is bestowed to you by the Spirit's power through faith. And through this righteousness, you will desire, you will delight to live in obedience to God, just as Noah did. And Noah did this. Noah lived this way in contrast to the world around him. That's really what we're seeing here in in Genesis 6. The world around him is crazy, absolutely bonkers, and Noah is walking with the Lord. Righteous before God, blameless. Noah, in verse 9, has these three virtuous qualities attributed to him. Righteous, blameless, walking with God. But the world, in verse 11, stands in contrast. Look at verse 11. The world is corrupt, 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 corrupt. Three times corrupt. Three times wicked. Noah has three sons. He's being fruitful and he's multiplying and he's filling the earth with the image of God. Genesis 1, blessing. The rest of humanity, filling the earth with violence. See the contrast between the two? Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What's Noah trying to say? There's some corruption happening here. And we think, when we hear the word corrupt, we think corrupt government, right? That's hard not to think that. But that's normally how we use the word. Everybody's dishonest. Everything's a scam. But really, 
it's different than that. Think, think of this word corrupt like when you're trying to open something in Windows and it says file corrupt. What does that mean? It means you can't open it. It's broke. Doesn't work anymore. The sense here in the Hebrew is that it is like meat that has become rotten and spoiled and the entire batch is ruined. It's useless. The corrupted, rotten, spoiled flesh has made its way through the whole earth. Now the only option, the only thing God can do is throw it away. Humanity has already, even before the flood, humanity has already destroyed itself. The entire earth is filled with violence. As we saw last week, absolute, total wickedness everywhere you go. Now I, most of you know I ride a motorcycle, it's my commuter. That means that I park it in public places. And motorcycles only have two wheels. And if you know me, you know that I'm a cynic and a skeptic. So there's always this little bit of me that is surprised when I return back to my bike and it's not been knocked over. I just believe in the wickedness of humanity (laughs) that somebody's going to knock it over just for the heck of it. But despite my doubts... That's never happened. There's still a little bit of decency in our world. If our world ever gets to the point where people are knocking over motorcycles just because, then we'll be that much closer to Noah's world. That's my litmus test. God's litmus test, God's litmus test is probably a lot closer to Sodom and Gomorrah or what we would think of as dystopian movies, right? So Mad Max, Mad Max Part 2, The Book of Eli, The Road, Elf. We're not, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not there yet. And yet we do live in a world that is increasingly corrupt, don't we? When good is redefined as evil, evil is redefined as good. Those who, who should be upheld in our, in our communities as, as, peop, as good examples, people to follow, are canceled, and those who we would normally put in prison are upheld as heroes. Evil has been redefined. We are living in an increasingly corrupt world, and we are assured by God's word, just like Noah was assured by God's word, judgment is coming. So what should our response be? That's the burning question for Christians, isn't it? All right, what do we do? How do we respond to an increasingly corrupting culture? Do we, do we hunker down and build our ramparts and, and just kind of holy huddle? Or do we go on the offensive? Or both? This is where Noah is an example to us. So Peter draws the parallel between Noah's day and our day, saying that God has judged the world in its entirety in the past, And through it, he he preserved his people, and God will do that again. Judge the world in its entirety and preserve his people. There's something in particular in Peter's teaching that I want us to see. 2 Peter chapter 2, we looked at it already. For if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see what Peter calls Noah there? A herald of righteousness. 
Now, we examined Noah's righteousness by faith from Hebrews, but Peter's cluing us in here to what Noah's righteousness looks like in real life, in the face of a corrupt world. He's not just building a boat. Noah is a herald. He's a proclaimer. That word means trumpet of righteousness. Noah did not move from where he was to a remote Montana mountain cabin and quietly mind his own business while he built the ark. Tempting. It's very tempting. My instinct, what my gut wants to do in the face of our world, every time I see Blue's Clues, is move away and go find a quiet place on earth somewhere with a lot less pavement and a lot less asphalt and a lot less traffic. Get away from all of it and just tend my garden with my family. And I'm not sure what that is. I don't know if that is a sinful impulse or if that is just looking forward to heaven. You could probably tell me better what that is looking into my life. But what is clearly being held out here as exemplary is not Noah's quiet solitude, is it? But his preaching. In the face of an entirely corrupt world, Noah was was not just an heir of righteousness, but a herald of righteousness. His righteousness that comes by faith wasn't just a privation between God and Noah. Noah's faith and righteousness that comes through faith went forth from Noah as gospel proclamation. That's what being a herald of righteousness means here. He's proclaiming. God's righteousness, God's goodness, God's promises, God's faithfulness, and God's judgment. He's pointing back for everyone. Look back at God's promise, everyone. He's proclaiming that through that promise, the coming judgment is escapable. Noah was preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the Messiah as the escape of God's judgment. That's how Noah escaped God's judgment. He trusted the Lord. Others could do that too if they would trust the Lord. And Noah could do this confidently. He could proclaim God's word confidently because he knew God's character. He knew that God was merciful to forgive. He knew God was 120 years patience, patient in bringing judgment. He knew God was faithful to keep His promises of the coming Messiah. He knew these things about God because He knew God. He walked with God. So, brothers and sisters, how do we live in the face of a corrupt world? Well, first of all, we live out the righteousness that we have received in Christ. Live in joy-filled obedience to God. Second of all, live as heralds of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, proclaim the gospel. Trust that because God says judgment is coming on the world, that judgment is coming on the world. So do not love the world or the things that are in the world, but trust that God is bringing judgment. Therefore, we now, like Noah, are to live lives in submission to the King, to King Jesus. 
and proclaim the hope of salvation in Christ and the forgiveness of God in Christ and the kingship of Christ. Live as citizens of Christ's kingdom and preach the gospel. There's this myth, and it's a myth, and it has been perpetuated by some within what I call the mushy middle of Christianity. And they would say that faith is a matter of personal, private conviction. We should keep it to ourselves. Love your neighbor by not being offensive. So if you own a bakery and someone says, can you bake me a cake? And that undermines everything that you believe, you do it because your, your, your faith is supposed to be personal and private and it's not loving to bake to not bake the cake. Or if someone says, use the pronouns that don't align with reality. Well, you, you should use those pronouns because we want to be winsome. I respectfully disagree. Maybe not respectfully. Christianity fundamentally is the belief that Jesus is king. If you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is king. He's the Christ. He became the Christ through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And because he's the Christ, our sins are forgiven and we have new life. But he is the king. Not just king over our hearts in our closets, but over all of creation. As Psalm 29 says, he sits enthroned over the flood. He defines what is good and what is evil, what is wrong and what is right. Christianity is not private, wishful thinking. Jesus' kingship is not something that we whisper about in our homes and in the confines of these walls. As Christians, we do not maintain two different lives, two different realities, one that we believe and live out with other Christians and one that we believe and live out in the world. That The Christian life is to be like Noah's life. That's why the New Testament authors point to him as an example for us in our day and age. Like Noah, we are to have a single-minded righteousness that comes through faith in God's Word. We are to have a blamelessness that has been created in us by Christ's sanctifying work, and we are to walk with God through the Holy Spirit. And our message is just like Noah's, only better. It's the same in that, like Noah, and I don't know exactly what Noah's preaching was, but I imagine that it was something like this. There was one God who made the world, and every single creature is accountable to him. And he is merciful, and he is just, and he is faithful, and we who know him take great joy in honoring him with our lives. He is truly faithful to keep his promises. But our message goes beyond that. Our message is better than Noah's because we know that God has kept his promise of the coming Christ. He sent his own son to crush the serpent and fulfill Genesis 3.15. And he revealed through the resurrection that the curse of death would also be lifted and all who trust in him would have eternal life in the presence of God in the new creation. And even now, brother Christian, sister Christian, we live in that new creation already. By faith in God's promise of the coming new creation, we are already on the boat passing through judgment. 
Christ is king forever. He's king over all. And he is coming again, as we confess together, to judge the living and the dead. So then how do we live in an increasingly corrupt world? We live and preach the righteousness of Christ because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Let's pray and thank the Lord for that. Lord, we confess this morning that this life that you call us to in Christ requires a great deal of boldness that we don't always have, we don't usually have. So we pray for boldness in your spirit. Lord, it requires compassion and love that we don't usually have. So we pray, Lord, for the, the fruit of the Spirit to give us gentleness and compassion, to have the courage to preach the truth, to speak the truth in a way that is perhaps offensive but filled with the love of Christ. Lord, when we are troubled, when we struggle, I pray that you would remind us of Noah. Put forth in our hearts and in our minds this hall of witnesses who are around us, who have lived this life before, hoping in Christ. Lord, strengthen our faith. Bind us closer to Christ. In Christ's name, amen.